This is Stena. Thank you for tuning in to the Identity in Me podcast, or In Me for short. I'm joined in this episode by a new colleague at Phillips Exeter Academy who discusses his experiences with me growing up in a blue collar immigrant family in the inner city. Pay close attention to our conversation because we cover quite a bit of social phenomena that isn't explicit intentionally. What up, what up? I'm here with Kevin Pajaro Marinez, who is a colleague at Phillips Exeter Academy. He's the newly minted Assistant Director of Equity and Inclusion, which is a brand new position here. I had the pleasure of being on the search committee that led to his hire. I read his resume and cover letter, which were great, but it was his interview that crystallized him as the real deal. I've gotten a chance to know this cat over a period of months, and I've learned that he isn't a fluke. His interview wasn't a fluke, rather. And he's here today to drop some knowledge on the podcast about the concept of positionality, which we'll get into later in the episode. Kevin, what's good, man? How you doing? What up, man? Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. Uh, thank you for such a heartwarming introduction. I was like, dang, I did not make such an impact, but I'm super excited. I've heard the podcast a couple times. And so, you know, obviously I was hyping up that you asked me. So here I am. Thank you so much for being a willing guest. And um, yeah, no, you were absolutely phenomenal. I'm uh, glad you're here with us. Why'd you apply for it? Um, for those who don't know me, my, my background is actually in um, higher education student affairs. So prior to here, I served as a hall director at a Research One um, institution. I had always been doing diversity work in different pockets. So whether it be presentations, workshops for my supervisees who were RAs, um, I, I was doing it in different capacities, but never officially through a job. And part of me knew that I was good at doing DEI-based work but I just didn't envision me being in that type of role until maybe way later in my life in some upper admin position capacity. But through, by way of an old boss, actually, she sent me this position um, and said that I would be a great fit. And so while I had some apprehensions because you know you see the, the title assistant director and then someone tells you that it's a new position, you're like, oh my gosh. And then the other added layer or layers was that it was in a K through 12 school that was also a boarding school. And I was like, I don't, I don't know what the heck an independent school is, aside from one experience that I had over at what I now know is the arrival school and over, right? So like very limited experience and all that. And I still decided that, you know what, it's worth a shot. And um, you know, everything happened and here I am. So I'm super thankful because I, you know, I know that the the pool of candidates was competitive and all that, but I think what led me to apply was mostly that um I knew I had the skill set and I know that I knew that I could make an impact in this position aligned with my values in ways that I, other things that I was looking for um, didn't really. So this came at the right time. Yeah. And I'm glad you're with us. So you and I share something in common. I actually didn't think about this previously. So uh, you weren't really aware of Phillips Exeter Academy before you got here or really the boarding school world. Um, I wasn't either. And we're both coming into newly created positions. So this position was new as well. And um, I landed on it on higheredjobs.com. And I'm looking at the job description. I'm like, I could, I could do that job. But are they going to take me seriously coming out of a community college without uh, the pedigree and all that? And one thing led to the next. Here I am. And I'm also happy to be here. So I want to go back to this matter of not knowing about boarding schools. I mean. 
doesn't everybody know about boarding schools and these elite institutions that are out there? I mean, recruiters weren't in your school trying to get you to attend one of these schools. Yo, let me tell you, let me tell you how much boarding schools are like not a thing, at least where I grew up. Right. And like love. And where did you grow up? I grew up in Providence, Rhode Island. So not too far from New Hampshire, where I'm currently at. So this literally happened not too long ago. So I was talking to someone. It was it was either one of my friends or a friend of a friend. It was I don't remember now. But the point was, we, I was talking about where I work, and I'm like, yeah, you know, I work at a boarding school. Some people call it independent school, right? But like, I figured out that it kind of means the same thing when I talk to different colleagues about it, and they're like, oh yeah, honestly, I just thought like schools like that where kids live and go to sleep and have dorms and stuff. I thought that, I thought that was only on TV, and I'm like. <laughs> Wow. I'm like, holy crap. So people really don't know about this. And I and for some reason, I thought I was maybe one of few where I was out the loop. But I realized that whether it be loved ones, people that I know with advanced degrees like myself, right, like the independent school world, the boarding school world is not one that people were familiar with because it was never made an avenue for them to even think that they could thrive, exist or even apply to a boarding school. So when I tell you that I knew nothing, it was like absolutely zero. Neither did my parents. And unfortunately, no recruiter ever tried to be like, let's go recruit somebody from Providence, Rhode Island to come to a boarding school out here in New Hampshire. And if they did, they wasn't coming to, they wasn't coming to my school. So Yep. Similar story. Never heard about these <laughs> schools. I heard about some really good high schools, but not boarding schools. I was in a program in high school, actually in middle school, and they were trying to get me to attend a really strong high school in Boston. And instead I ended up going to a different school. No regrets there, but I do sometimes wonder what would have happened had I gone to this other prestigious high school. It was Boston University Academy and the last year of high school counts as your first year of college. So that would have been dope. But yeah, I went to Brookline High, enjoyed that experience. But yeah, nobody ever told me about boarding schools. I don't know anybody who went to boarding school. For that reason, when I applied, I didn't know if they take me too seriously. And I'm wondering if we share something else in common. Did you grow up in a working class community? Yeah. So um, while the neighborhood that I was in, I, I didn't know all my neighbors, but I would, from for the people that I didn't know, I would venture to say um, pretty confidently that most of the people on my block were working class. And also five to 10 minutes from where we were at, was also like a local, like local project housing, right. Or like the projects. So a lot of the, a lot of the colleagues and uh, my peers and my homies that I grew up with, a lot of them from were from working class families, a lot of them first generation, um, black and Brown students, you know, those are the folks that I grew up with. And so it's it's not until I got to college and and grad school that I, I was like, Oh, people grow up real different than me, right? People have families, mom and father present in the house that went to college. Um, Money was never really a barrier. Folks didn't have to think about money, right? Whereas my parents were of the, you have to work twice as hard for everything you want and live out the American dream. And I mean, I guess we'll talk about it at some point, but you know, the American dream has a lot of things attached to it that aren't afforded to everyone um, all the time, especially for people who look like us. So yeah, man. Yeah. Working class, heavy, heavy, heavy um, in the working class background, both my family and growing up with my peers who also identified the same with that experience. So you're talking a little bit about your identity right now. You've um, touched on the community you grew up in. You mentioned the racial identity of 
uh, people in your community growing up. And so I'm going to take this opportunity to ask you what I uh, ask all of my guests when they come on to start the interview, which is how do you identify? Yeah, so I identify as a um, Afro Latino, uh, Black Latino man, cis hetero, a cis heterosexual man, um, first generation uh, college educated. So I have my bachelor's and my master's degree, uh, able bodied, and also neurotypical. So I think all those things are important. I don't have any spiritual affiliation um, as of now or active spiritual practice. Um, yeah, that, that's how I'm coming into the space. And, I, you know, I'm also a U.S. citizen. So all, all those things I actively think about because of my upbringing, because of the networks that, I, that I'm afforded now and, um, you know, a lot of the a, a lot of the privileges that, that have come because of my experiences growing up and, and all that. So um, that's how I'm coming into the space. OK, so what I should do right now is say, can you talk to us again about how you identify, but give me the cookout version that you would offer at the family gathering. Right. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm just messing. Because when you're like, this hetero, um, neuronormative, I'm like, hey, um, oh, this man some of my relax. audience will get that. <laughs> um, all right, so the, the cookout version is just, I, I am Black Latino dude who grew up in Providence, Rhode Island. Um, you know, I got a couple of cool pieces of paper, um, but really, like, I just like to vibe. I like to vibe with people, um, real social. And, uh, you know, I, I try to be as humble as I can on an everyday. So that that's the cookout, very basic version of where I'm coming from. Where did you go to high school in Providence? I was born in Providence. You know that, right? Mm -hmm. We talked about that. Yeah. So high school was E-Cubed Academy. So it's it was a newer high school. And I'm not sure if you were around Providence or you got to see it as you were growing up. But um, yeah, E-Cubed Academy, right, right on Branch Avenue, uh, class of 2011. So, Y'all hear that? He's a youngster. Class <laughs> of 2011. 2011. I, I'm not going to um, continue to make you <laughs> or try to make you feel bad about being younger. I'm actually envious. 40 happened way too fast for me. It's so I had my cousin on uh, the podcast. He was my guest for the landlord in me episode, and he grew up in Providence. And he said something to me that kind of blew me away. It shouldn't have, but it always surprises me when I um, encounter folks, uh, folks of color, who tell me that they had little to no interaction with white people growing up. For a handful of years growing up, I lived in Dorchester, Massachusetts for about four to five years. And there was one white boy in um, my school. But when I moved to Brighton, I was the only black boy. And by then I was 11, 12 years old. So I tend to sometimes forget about the earliest years where uh, my community was heavily um, Afro-Caribbean. And so uh, my question to you is, was your experience similar to my cousins in terms of not really encountering white people in your school and what was the demographic of your community growing up? Yeah, I, I was actually, I know folks can't see us like interacting through the video, but I was actually nodding my head when you told me about your cousin's experience because that that definitely is one that I resonate with 1000%. So I, no matter what school I went to, whether it was elementary, middle school and, and high school, but especially high school, interactions with white people were very minimal. Uh, the demographic 
the people around me were always uh, black and Latino, right? Black, black and brown kids. Um, majority of them, um, free lunch, first generation would have been the first in their family had it, you know, had people, if people decided to go to college at that time. So in, interactions with white people were, were super minimal, which is why I think college was such a different atmosphere for me. Like seeing just even mannerisms, right? Like it, it, I grew up obviously in an Afro-Caribbean household, at least on my mom's side, right? So different things culturally that I grew up in the house with, you, you take with you because that's part of your experience. But yeah. when I got to college and I recognized that not everyone's operating in the same way, whether it be through how you greet somebody, the things you do when you get into somebody's space that they call home, right? Like things are so drastically different. And I, I realized pretty early on, and I, I couldn't name it then, and I, I have a better way of articulating it now. But back then, like it, because I grew up in Providence where I did, it was assumed that the rest of the world was also like Prov, right? That yeah, I would yeah. see people who look like me, that I would hear the same music blasting on the street. And then you get to different spaces, whether it be New Hampshire or, or uh, Kingston, Rhode Island, and it's like, oh, it's it's like really empty or it ain't as loud or like people, even something simple as when people have dinner, right? The concept of dinner is is, is way different in a, in a Caribbean household than it is for white folks. And I, I really didn't have an understanding of that until I moved out of Prague. So can you say more about that, please? Yeah. About what specifically? Dinner. Um, so the concept of dinner, how, how folks eat and um, oh, man. also yeah. you went to URI, right? The University right. of Rhode Island. OK, mm-hmm. so go ahead. Yeah, so d- dinner this is actually a, such a good question because I think about this so much and I, and I talk about this um, with my homies a lot, but like even the, the concept of dinner is, is strange to me and it always has been growing up, but it, it didn't feel as strange as it did until I got to college. So when I went to college, I remember, you know, I, obviously I had white friends then or people that were white that I interacted with. And when I would talk about at home, when I would have dinner, I'd be like, oh, yeah, we, you know, sometimes I would have dinner like at 7 or 8 p.m. Because my mom got, you know, my mom got home at like 5 and then had to cook and, and whatever else. We, we, we used to have dinner at, you know, at 3 p.m. or 3.30, 4 p.m. on the dot. And, we, and everybody had to be at the table. And I'm like, I'm like what? Mm. Everybody, had to, everybody had to sit at the table. And, and what, what I didn't recognize then was that, like, because of the constraints of what my parents had to do work-wise it wasn't actually feasible for us all to eat at the table. But what I learned about dinner was that it was like this protected time, at least in my eyes at that and in college, right? Like in my eyes and through my perspective right now, as I'm hearing this white person talk to me about what dinner means to them, it seems that dinner for a lot of white families is like this protected, super important time for all members of immediate family to get together at the table and talk shop about how was your day and what about the news and da da da. If I sat at the table to eat dinner, I was very, I, I considered myself, I considered it to be a very rare thing that all members of my family were present to eat. The only time that that felt like a thing was on Sundays, we would order Chinese food, right? And like everybody was home. So we'd all eat at what maybe people consider dinner time. But during the week, it was very regular for me to eat dinner alone, right? And I would eat it super late. And, and I just thought that was regular. I thought that's what all people did. Um, so I feel like the concept of dinner, really brought home that people's family dynamics are really different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it, it, that is especially the case for folks of color in comparison to white people. And I'm not sitting here saying that white folks don't have the same dynamics that I did growing up, but I, I find that that is more rare for them at, than it is for people who look like you and I. Got so. it. It's, 
you know, you and I were on the same wavelength um, uh, because I was thinking to myself, well, I'm sure some white people can relate um, to the experience of dinner being this different dynamic uh, because I'm thinking it's more of a socioeconomic phenomenon um, than a racial one. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think I think in some ways, absolutely. Um, And I, I mean, I guess I don't really know or I don't know if there's like research around it or like some, you know, some scholar do, doing some different thinking, but I think racially, um, even when I think about like the concept of the nuclear family, like two parents, two kids, for a lot of people of color, at least that I grew up with, that that wasn't the dynamic, right? So like, while I think it very much is a socioeconomic thing, I, I think racially, I think there's something there, I just don't know what it is yet. And I'm sure that some people have thought about it way more sensitively than what you and I are talking about it as, but I, I would agree. I think it's heavily based on some socioeconomic stuff that's happening, cultural stuff too. You know what was different for me? Like noting a, a stark difference with some of the experiences my white peers had in school. Mm-hmm. Um, I played sports. I played basketball a lot. That was my go-to sport. I played football for a time. And white kids always had their parents at games. My parents didn't go to games and it wasn't because they didn't care, but for my parents being immigrants um, to them, it's like, this is a game you play and I'm going to give you space to do that. But like, I'm expecting school. I'm expecting you to come home and know how to act. Um, The expectations were different. And um, this matter of getting rides everywhere. And for me, I was like, what? Like public transportation is how I roll Uh, growing up. At 10 years old, I was taking two buses and a train to school. And people are like, what? You were 10? I'm like, yeah. My mom trusted that I knew what I was doing. They gave me a bus pass and I was out. And it wasn't for lack of care. And so I tend to get in my feelings when I hear people, whether white, black, Asian, whoever, like, oh, you know, this kid's parents don't show up. They must not care. I'm like, no, 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 no. You you can relate. I'm just, yeah, I could 1000% relate, man, because you know what, it, you know what it is too? I think as kids, I'll, I'll speak for me, let me not generalize or project, right? But like, for me, I do remember being one of the kids who internalized like a parent not showing up means they don't care. But I, I especially internalized that on my end. I was like, why can't my mom make it? Why can't my pops make it? Why can't they show up to one of my basketball games, right? And I was playing in like a super chill boys and girls club rec league, like no stakes whatsoever. I was not banking my future on any sport because quite frankly, I just wasn't really good. (laughs) But but what's so funny about what you were saying and why I was nodding was like people's experiences experiences with what like a, a a parent who was present means is so drastically different because even though I had internalized for a little bit that, oh, my mom must not care because she's not showing up to a game. I also knew in the back of my head, I was able to recalibrate. I was like, all right, I'm mad right now, but like, I know my mom has to work because she got to pay bills. So I knew as a kid very quickly, even when I had those moments of frustrations and my parents couldn't show up like the other people, that there was a reason why. Um, But I also wonder how those experiences like accumulated, like those small moments of frustration. You know, if, if my parents... If my mom or my dad weren't able to show up at the basketball game, there were a lot of moments where I had to learn how, like, I was frustrated, but then I would also recalibrate because I learned that the reason why they're not there was because watching the games don't necessarily contribute to the bills. So I knew very quickly that while I was 
while I had a reason to be frustrated and it felt valid in a lot of ways, it wasn't tied to my parents not caring about me. It was tied to, yo, we, we won't be able to live next month yeah. if I miss hours of work, right? And my parents were making minimum wage that back in the day, it wasn't really doing much and, and it still ain't, right? In a lot of ways. So yeah, man, I, when I hear people who have the benefit of having their parents present, being able to have parents that give them and their friends rides everywhere with no question, I, I just wasn't afforded that all the time. And I think I had to, and once I developed a language to figure out what the socioeconomic stuff was that contributed to them not being able to do recreational things like watch their child play basketball while not worrying about money. Now I'm like, oh, they were really grinding. Like they were really grinding back in the day to give me the life I have now. But back when I was, you know, 10, 12, I was like, they must hate me. Like, why don't they want to come out? And it it wasn't so simple. So I, that's why I was not in my head. Cause I'm like, I feel you. Cause I internalize a lot of the same stuff about my own parents. And when you talk about parents working to put you in a position uh, to, uh, to do what you're doing today, I, I was just thinking to myself, as you said that, and here I am now driving a dad van with balls in the <laughs> trunk, driving kids to practice and games because, you know, my, my schedule is very different than what my parents' schedule was. Um, there was a, mm-hmm. a time when my mom was working seven to three, three to 11, three yeah. times a week. My father was working 11 to sevens. People are tired uh, when when they do that. So totally understood. Um, And another thing you said earlier that I want to go back to real quick before we shift gears, how we experienced college and and the shock, really. Um, So I remember going to my predominantly white campus at Clark University. Um, I've said in prior episodes that I was one of 3% of students on the campus, 3% of Black students. And... Man, I I still remember this day. How's that for a cliffhanger? Thank you for tuning in to part one of our conversation. Be sure to tune in to part two to hear the rest of the story. It gets really interesting. Identity and me. and me